And welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? Well, Steve, with Twitter on fire and potentially eroding, we got to give the people what they want. So we have the solution. It's called the Scholar Clubhouse. It is. You know, John, I got to say, out of all the things that we've thrown at the wall of let's try this, the Scholar Clubhouse is the best because we've got, you know, nearly 400 coaches. Oh, no, athletes. we have over. It's over now, oh, Steve. It's and we over have almost 430. 430. Oh, man. All right. Over 400 coaches, athletes, just people interested in in running and performance and endurance sports in general, cyclists, triathletes, all sorts of people. And they're talking actual training. We're talking actual biomechanics, the psychology of of the endurance sports. We're going deep on things that actually matter instead of being caught in the cesspool that is every other social media, online, chat room, platform, message board. Yeah, it's real dialogue real discourse and it's not an echo chamber it's not just like everyone's getting on board with whatever i say or steve says it's like people coming in with their own perspectives their own you know uh, experiences as well as coupling it with evidence scientific literature research it is just phenomenal to see the brain trust and the explosion of knowledge that is in the scholar clubhouse exactly it is it's something else. And, you know, I got to say our timing's perfect as Twitter yeah. burns. <laughs> well, no, I, I'd say we lucked out. <laughs> we, we lucked out. We got lucky here. As Twitter burns, we have a place. We have the refuge. We have the community. Yes. We're saying, you know what? Come join us over here. We don't have to moderate stuff because people aren't, you know, jerks. Yeah, I mean, so, we could if we wanted, but thankfully, I, I have yet to delete or scrub any post to date. So, I know knock on wood. It's, gr- it's great, and you know why? You know, I'm going to say why is that? Because yes, there is a cost to entry, and that cost you get the clubhouse, but you also get hundreds of hours of courses and info and all that stuff. But I think that that barrier actually. Not only does it support our work, John, but it mm. ensures that the quality of individual is is high. Because if you're investing in yourself and you're coaching, like you're gonna show up and like be open to learning versus like if you don't invest, if it's just, you know, the let's run message board, you can be a jerk and there's no consequences. Yeah, I'll give an example of this. This is really um, you know, important, right? On a couple months ago on Let's Run Message Board, I had a friend text me and goes, hey, do you know the answer to this question? And it was a question posed of like, why are sprinters so muscular? And it's, you know, why do they need to be so big and muscly? And every answer on the board was 100% wrong, right? It comes down to essentially they need this big musculature on them because of the um, creatine phosphate system and storage of glycogen and creatine phosphate in bigger myofibrillar muscles, right? So the only way to get increase storage or carrying capacity is increase the size of your muscle fibers. So you build up the tissues, hypertrophy, right? What that does is allows them quicker explosion off the blocks, getting quicker up to max velocity, and then able to maintain it to make the time course of their race shorter. Every single post on Let's Run was wrong. It just, it was like anecdotal, you know, kind of like smart assy. 
And it didn't answer the poster's original question, which is very simple when you look at it from a scientific and even energetic perspective. So we are actually having those intelligent, evidence-based conversations, Q&As in the Scholar Clubhouse, where we actually get down to the nitty-gritties why it works. One thing we're doing right now is a sport form development channel going through Bonnerchuk's methodology, which is fun because there was initially a lot of resistance when I presented it. But if you look at the science of running on page 172, Steve has in, you know, what are we training for chapter, the general class to specific classification system, which he adopted from Canova's a scientific approach to marathon training, which Canova directly adopted from Anatoly Bonarchuk. So the whole cycle is this. I adopted it from Steve. Steve adopted it from Canova. Canova adopted it from Bonarchuk. Then I went and I went to the source, Bonarchuk, and even simplified it even more. <laughs> and how cool is that, that you get to see that whole historical perspective and basically have a better understanding about what is aerobic support, direct speed support, general endurance support, recovery, uh, et cetera, um, in this classification scheme that makes the application of training simpler, smoother, and a lot more predictable. There you go. So there I don't is. know what you're waiting for. Jump on board. Yes. That's, that's all. Join us. As Twitter implodes, <laughs> come to the place where you can still have discussions <laughs> and not get yelled at and screamed at. All right. So yeah. that that's where it is. And I should say, you can have discussions where it's not all, oh, we all agree. It's you can actually get to the meat and potatoes and like disagree, but do so civilly because. Yes. Real know? discourse is valuable. Real discourse. Real discourse. Huge. So, yeah, and it only, it's one of those network effects and things that has momentum and inertia. It only gets better as more people join, which they are. It only gets better as we age. Like, I don't know what the tipping point's going to be to where it's going to eventually be the thing you have to be on as a distance runner or distance coach. But I think we're going to get to that uh, threshold hopefully sooner rather than later. Yes. All right. So check it out. And guess what? We've got this week a topic that is inspired from some of those conversations. Yes. <laughs> so what are we talking about this week? You don't need as much VO2 max work as you think. Mm. So... So let me let me set the stage here, John. And, I, I and then a, once you set it, I will compliment it because we both had, I think, two conversations that really spurred this. Yes. So I had a high school. I had a conversation with a high school coach who was talking about various high school training programs he'd seen and the workouts, and he was he was like, "Have you seen these workouts? Like, look at that. Like, look at it." And I remember. You know, one was like, you know, four by mile, essentially at 3K pace. Another was a crap load of a 800s and thousands at, at faster than 3K pace, like high, vo high volume, very fast, all this stuff. And he's like, just the VO2 max work for these high school kids is so much and so impressive. And that sparked a debate or a, a, a dialogue where we're like, yes, but is that necessary? Because here's what I've seen in, in my coaching and understanding of this is that if you go somewhere prematurely, you're limiting your development in that area. Because if I hammer down VO2 max work, yes, I can get very fit and very fast very quickly. But eventually, 
what happens is you just get you get so used to riding that line where there is no further stimulus or you have to do something even crazier to get a new stimulus to adapt. And, you know, what it did, John, is I went back. Uh, we're going way back here. Back to my early days coaching high school kids. And I looked at, okay, well, what was the VO2 max stuff for this these this group? And to set the stage, like, you know, at, we had a team that got second at state in Texas and just missed out on NXN as a team. They were one of the first ones out. And um, and then had individuals like Ryan Donor, who was, I believe, like 10th at NXN and then was Texas state champion. We had guys, uh, the second guy was the guy named Will Nation, who was very successful in high school and college and now has gone on to run like 212, 213 for the marathon. So successful post-collegiately. And I, I kid you not, like I'm going to, I'm just going to pull it up before I, I turn over to you, John, is these, the, l- listen to some of these VO, VO2 max workouts, three sets of 600, 500, 400 at 3k pace. Oh, that's, that's, that, that's, 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 that's tough there. That's really tough. All right. Let me, let me scroll down here and, uh, and find another one because I have to go a couple weeks because we didn't do very much of of them. Here we go. 800, 400, 800 at 3,200 pace. That's, that's, that's some high volume there. High volume. Let me find. Another one up. Here we go. One set of 1K, 500, 800, 400. Man. So the the point here is we I could keep going on these. But like these are the babiest of babiest of VO2 max workouts. And yet, you know, back in the way pre-super pre shoe area, era you had kids like i mean ryan ran 850 something for two miles coming off of mono actually you know will ran you know 14s 19s we had another guy who ran 14s another guy who ran 416 and 19 so there was a bunch of like high quality guys running fast in that kind of vo2 max mile to two mile where that's that specific specific but they did very little of it and succeeded and then had room to grow in college and beyond. Yeah, I think the underlying um, reality of VO2 max work is this is very glycolytic, which means it's very acidic producing, right? So you have a high degree of acidosis that is triggered by this kind of quote unquote top end ish type running. And when you look at kind of various lactate curves with tipping points, it is on the other side, the high, you know, acidosis side of what is traditionally called the anaerobic threshold just over, right? And so what ends up happening is it's a lot of instant offense, as I call it. You get a lot of rapid adaptations very quickly because one thing that elicits mitochondrial biogenesis and mitochondrial elongation or improvement in their efficacy is a mild degree of acidosis. That is a signaling um, to create more mitochondria in your cells. but The hard part is, as you said, Steve, is it can quickly become corrosive and it can quickly become too much too soon. I'll give a really good example of this. So um, 
without giving you know all the secrets away and all the you know details to it, it um, Mike Smith was interviewed after the uh, NAU Lumberjacks won this most recent uh, NCAA cross country championships as a team, and he very explicitly and humbly stated, "Yeah, I messed up in their training." before Nuttycomb when they had a really subpar performance, right? Guys finishing in like the hundredth and everyone wrote NAU off, right? Me being an insider, knowing what was going on, I was like, no, it'll be fine. Um, But what happened, right? So, well, essentially the way Mike sets up their training is, you know, being a Jack Daniels guy and um, having studied under him, there used to be a lot of VO2 max sessions in their training. In the last several years, he has swapped those out for more flux training, uh, as we're calling it, and as well as more sub T type work. So there's not as much VO2 explicit sessions where that's the sole focal point, but there still is some. And what happened, right, is their first VO2 max session of the season fell a week before Nuttycomb. And VO2 max sessions are a lot of fun, especially when you've been like super disciplined in training because flux training requires you to be very disciplined with your modulation of paces. Uh, sub T training uh, requires you be very disciplined. So it's very disciplined. VO2 max is very um, sexy and enticing because you find kind of quote, can let the dogs out and just like rip it, right? That's kind of the concept of VO2 max training, whether you, your um, exercise or repeat 1Ks or, you know, as Alberto Salazar and the Oregon Project made famous, repeat hard miles, right? Et cetera. It seems like, whoa, this is awesome. And plus, it's really fun to run fast, but you can quickly overdo it. And one of the things about excessive acidosis in the system is that stuff lingers for a long time. Like we're talking seven to 14 days, even in really highly trained athletes. And so for the NAU Lumberjacks, their first exposure to hard VO2 max stimulus came a week before Nuttycomb. Every race after that is expected to have a VO2 max type illicit effect. So how Mike kind of sets up his training is he looks at a couple VO2 max sessions now, and then the races themselves, the 8Ks, are also considered VO2 max stimuli type sessions. So for him, it makes sense. But the reality is they were still flat from that VO2 max session. And Mike understood that. He saw that. We talked about training, you know, you know, when we, um, dialogue about it. And I'm always kind of like, don't just get rid of the VO2 max, get rid of it. Just no more VO2 max sessions because it's no longer in my programming because it's just so harsh. But having been, you know, um, schooled by Jack Daniels, seeing the scientific evidence and literature and all that stuff firsthand, it's one of those tough things uh, that he has a hard time getting rid of. More and more of it has gone out of their training. And I expect, you know, probably in a couple of years, we won't see that as everything evolves because there's a very good alternative, which is flux training to that, which allows for better metabolic flexibility and fluctuation versus just that red line for three to six minutes, hardcore. And people love it because it makes you feel like a badass. But at the same time too, I think the reality is it's too hard, too much, too corrosive. That's why you get such a big bump, but it's also why you get such a big plateau. Exactly. You know, the thing I would say is this is, is think about it like this, compare it to maybe the little bit faster, like traditional, we'll call it anaerobic, you know, work of the, the, you know, go do some 400s at mile pace, the banister workout. Well, 
what happens there is that workout is incredibly corrosive as well in terms of acidosis and it's necessary in some cases, but you're limited because, because it's so it's more acidosis. It's more anaerobic. You're going to hit that point somewhere between six and 10, four hundreds where your body is just done. Right. So the acidosis is high, but the volume of it, the, the time we'll use a, the strength analogy, the time under tension or the time under acidosis is limited because like you hit that spot, you know, you get to two miles worth of work, whatever, 10 minutes total worth of work and you're just done. You know, you're, you're, you're fried. What happens on the VO2 max stuff is it's just a little bit shorter or sorry, just a little bit slower so that you can get high volumes of it and sustained, right? That's why you have people do, again, I said, like, you know, try to do literally four by mile at 3K pace. Like, that's freaking (laughs) tough. Or the, you you know, the 8 to 10 by 800s at close to 3K pace. That's freaking grinding it, Mm -hmm. you know? And that's a lot of volume. You start looking at that and you're like, oh man, we're getting four plus miles worth of work at two mile pace or a little faster. And that's where the problem comes in is there's no kind of natural barrier that kind of limits your volume content. And because of that, it's so easy to dig in that hole and just live there. Another thing I'd say is, well, you know, you mentioned flux training. Well, go back to the OGs of mm. Igroy and Bob Shule and you look at, wait a minute, these guys were training for the 5K, which is, you know, close to VO2 max. And they were doing it with reps of hundreds, two hundreds, three hundreds. Yeah. You know? I mean, there was maybe four hundreds, maybe once in a while, okay. maybe once in a while, one eight hundred, one. Right. Like, <laughs> So, so you look at that and you're like, oh, well, how does that work? They got a, a decent amount of volume in it, but oh, they're doing it in like 200. So you're not, you're not writing that line. You're not writing that like, let's stay just in the, the, the right side of, you know, not defaulting towards disaster as we grind this out. You're doing is 200, 300 short rest, short jogging rest, 50 meter jogging rest. So it's the original kind of flux training of like, oh, we can get a stimulus around this kind of pace and effort and get, you know, our body up to VO2 max, but then come back down and go up and, and come back down. And that allows you to get a higher volume and, and kind of a safer, more aerobic environment where you're still touching on those fast speeds without the, the kind of big you know payment or withdrawal Mm -hmm. of the money that you have to do in quote-unquote traditional vo2 max work yeah i think we have you know what we adopted was is a big number bias right and you look at different um training methodologies even from you know the igloy bowerman bob schul um you know vladimir kunst uh type era and the concept of continuous running was just a modality, a vehicle, one vehicle of many, which to apply stress or stimulus. Then Lydia comes along and says, you know, we're going to do this continuous marathon training. And it defaults because why? It's a lot more convenient because it's just, you don't have to spend like 
two to three hours at the track. This is what Iglo and Bob Shore, they were at the track for two, three hours for these sessions, right? You can just boom, get it done and get it over with. So when we chunk it too big though, bigger is not better when it comes to um, VO2 max work because of the high degree of glycolytic um, and acidosis production. Actually, smaller chunks with more fluctuation or variability is better because it teaches the body how to clearance all that stuff. When you're going for five, six, seven minutes in a row, and then you take three minutes recovery, you don't get as much uh, modulation or kind of localized clearance. It's just this big dump and then this big cleanup, big dump and big cleanup versus in a race, right? Where there's like stops and goes, if you're in cross country, upsells, downhills, there is more modulation that's necessary. And you want to teach the body, be able to use those kind of like um, downhills or, you know, areas of the race where the pace might slacken a little bit as clearance opportunities. But if you don't do that, if your only concept is hard case, hard miles, and you're just rocking and rolling, you know, it's, it, it's kind of, again, you're, 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 it's a, uh, a devil's gambit because at the, you're just, you're playing with fire because you're just trying to wait. Okay. I'm going to fall off a cliff. I'm just trying to get here and then tough it through. But we know with acidosis, right? You can, it turns off, you know, the nerve firing signaling turns off the muscle tissue. So you might have more energy in carbohydrate or glycogen available to help you run fast. But because the acidosis has effectively turned off the muscle fiber, you can't. And it becomes very frustrating. It becomes the quote unquote death march. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, and, you know, John, I think the important part here is that it's like we've talked about or, you know, before on this podcast is that, um, I think it's particularly, you know, dangerous in, in high school kids because, you know, high school kids don't have as developed aerobic system. They're not as good at, at clearing stuff out. They're not as good at like riding that line. And what happens is often this VO2 max work, let's say we do, you know, crazy amount of 800s pretty dang fast with a decent rest is that decent rest allows us to get by right and and you can see this so i i'm not gonna call out names or whatever have you but if you've ever watched you know sometimes some high school high level high school athletes or programs you watch their workout wednesdays or whatever they used to do and you'll see a kid who looks like they're grinding from you know rep number two to rep number eight you know, they're just riding that line and you're like, oh, OK, this athlete is getting by because they've got, you know, a little because they're, they're just pushing and they've got a little bit of rest that allows them to sustain this. But like they're not letting it come. They're not like, you know, getting it smooth into this workout. They're just kind of surviving it in the name of surviving it. And every once in a while, you got to survive a workout, what have you. But I think there's a lot of danger in that because at some point you get to you get to a point where like there's no room like you can only ride that line grind for so long and there's no room to grow in that area. And, and it's again, it's really tempting to kind of go down that line because, you know, the the good thing about VO2 max is mm -hmm. I'll, I'll put it this way is if I had six weeks to get someone to peak who 
hadn't done a lot of training before or like who I just didn't care. I just wanted them to get really fast in a 5K or a 3K or what have you. What would I do? I'd probably do a weekly VO2 max session, right? I mean, at least for a bit until I let them finally recover. <laughs> but it gets you really fit really fast because you're just you're just riding that line for so long. Yeah, I mean, and let's not forget, it works the heart at a really high level. Yes. Like the heart is pumping. And so people who are overly centric on the pump or the heart as the paradigm for their training model and focus only on improving the efficacy or um, size or, you know, um, max heart rate capacity of that muscle tend to gravitate towards these longer VO2 max um, stimuli. What's interesting is if you look back at like the Soviet literature, um, they codified this. They said, um, you know, the oxidation of lactic ingredients after heavy lactic training sessions occurs after four to six days. And that's of only doing aerobic training sessions. So their guidance was if you're going to do a classic VO2 max session, then you need to then budget for four to six days of easy aerobic oxidative activity to get full clearance, full restoration, uh, oxidation of those lactic ingredients versus the oxidation of lactic ingredients after an interval training session or maybe a flux training session where there's more modulation, less, um, you know, exposure, um, duration of exposure uh, acutely per rep occurs after only two aerobic training sessions. <laughs> so it's kind of, you. that's why flux training is so valuable because you can do, if we're thinking about volume of quality and time and retention, you can do more um, stimuli, you can do more um, exposures to it with less acute recovery from it. But if you're going to do these hard miles, these hard K repeats that are classic in the VO2 max literature, you must budget for that four to six days of easy, easy, easy recovery running. That's the problem is it's not that the VO2 max session itself in the classic uh, architecture is bad. It's the corrosion happens because what happens two or three days later, you then do another type of harder workout or stimulating session, whether it be a long run, tempo run, speed work, whatever that injects a whole nother um, thresh uh, amount of metabolites into the body that need clearance and then it just starts to stack and it starts to stack in a bad way and now what usually took four to six days becomes eight days becomes 12 days becomes 20 days and so now this person this athlete is kind of chronically under recovered and if they're in this kind of subacute chronic under recovery state they're really close to overtraining they're really close to burnout they're really close to injury they're really close to illness and it just again it stacks yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, that <laughs> that's also why if you look at um, the 1990s in uh, in um, in America, mm. where oh. like we went kind of all, all in, <laughs> all, all in on VO2 max, <laughs> right? Like you see some of the same kind of phenomena that occurred even at the high school or even at the professional side, which is like people got relatively <laughs> fit, relatively quick, but then just stagnated. Like there was no development that was going on. Like it was few and far between on, on athletes who could make that. No one could make that 
next jump. We had a bunch of, I don't know, 1335K guys, right? And, and they were like and, 1330 in college and we're like, okay, these yeah. are our next group of guys. And then it's just like stagnation. Yeah. It's just stagnation. It's just like no one, no one can make that leap. And it makes sense where if you look at, okay, like this is what occurs when you overemphasize VO2 max is you just kind of, you know, you get really quick, really fit for you really quickly, but there's no like foundation off of which to either build off of or shift that stimulus off of. And high school kids, right, are really robust because puberty. I mean, so many hormones and different biological processes are happening at warp speed. And there's a whole, you know, big flux of all these different, um, you know, stimuli just um, from a predisposition of, you know, puberty and maturation in their body that, yeah, you can do wild and crazy things with them. I mean, this is essentially, we got to remember why the functional movement screen was developed initially, was to help get better movement quality in high school kids in the weight room, because the pre- the developers of it were working with that uh, athlete population, just saw like, holy crap, this person's valgus knees on a squat, you know, like doing all this stuff. And the body is very resilient. We are in, you know, hardwired to endure and hardwired to survive. So we can tolerate loads and loadings that might not be the most structurally or functionally sound for a long time and still like not die. But in athletics, our goal is not to just endure and survive, it's to thrive. And when we take that lens, we have to step back and go, how is this setting this person up for, you know, a long longitudinal success? Now, if you have, right, say a high school senior or an athlete who's like, hey, we got to get in shape quick, by all means, intelligent VO2 max application is a very rapid way to go to get outsized and, um, you know, gains and impact. I'll give an example here, like, um, say my wife, she's going to run club cross country nationals next week. And so she's been getting in shape and getting in shape and getting in shape. And she got to like a certain point in the most recent cross country race she ran, like a USATF regional race. And like she had, she's been doing a lot of flux training. She's been doing a lot of that type of work, but she just couldn't grind. She said, I couldn't like make my legs move quicker. I couldn't like, you know, like find another gear. Right. And when athletes describe that, and you haven't been doing VO2 max work, that's like, okay, great. Guess what we're going to do? Two to three VO2 max sessions of 400s hard. So we're going to do 10 times 400 at 3K pace with one to one or one to two work rest ratio. So you're going to do, you know, eight, she, for her, it's like 80, 75 seconds for her 400s. So it's going to take 80 to, you know, seconds to two minutes recovery. She's going to just hit that and is going to hit that three sessions in a row, take about two to three days of recovery after each session, not doing anything else. And then the compliment of the second part of that session is uh, complimenting it with, say, three to four times a mile at kind of easy 15K half marathon threshold pace with very generous recovery. So usually if you just did that stimulus, it'd be razor thin recovery, right? 60 seconds, 90 seconds. Nope, take 400 jog. Because this also is the initial aerobic flush that helps oxidize and flush out any of those acidic byproducts that come in. So the rate of acidosis is not as high. So then all she's really fighting uh, from a restoration standpoint is 
glycogen resynthesis in those kind of faster twitch muscle fibers. And that, you know, time frame takes about two days, right? As long as you're well fed and eat up your carbs and don't run too hard in between. Yeah, I think an important <laughs> point you, you make there is the time frame. And I think where we get VO2 max work often wrong is we, you know, you mentioned this at the beginning is in the traditional sense, the time frame is, you know, five plus days um, for you to be able to bounce back. But in our traditional kind of weekly schedules, especially at the high school level, like we don't have that time. Mm-hmm. What we do instead is stack some more hard work on top of that with some other workout or what have you or race often as we race weekly. And we just kind of keep digging that hole and high school kids are resilient. So you don't see that hole initially, or maybe they can withstand it for a while. <laughs> but eventually what happens is like it, it, you have to pay for it, you know? Yes. It's, it's and, the general adaptation syndrome at its best, right? The alarm is the VO2 max session. Then there's resistance for a little while, but if you keep doing it, exhaustion. <laughs> yeah. And the, the thing I should say is, you know, a lot of people, whenever I mention this, they'll, they'll counter and they'll be like, well, what about like Joe V Hill who does some really hard VO2 max sessions? And I'll be like, you know, he does with his elite athletes. But these are elite athletes, you know, A. And B, if you look at Joe V. Hill's system to prep to get there, you're talking a crazy amount of aerobic threshold development. And his athletes were at altitude. So a crazy amount of aerobic thresholds and anaerobic threshold develop lactate threshold development before they even get to that phase of like, hey, we're going to crank the crap out of these VO2 max workouts. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's a different way to say it. I would say a little bit riskier, and maybe that risk is worth the reward at that elite level. But like they're prepping that he's, Hill would prep the athletes before like going into his VO2 max phase. Right. And that I think also the other thing, to highlight when we look at elite athletes training and try to extrapolate the principles of why it works and to say lower level or lower qualification athletes or amateur athletes is the more intense and severe a training session is the more structured and intense and severe the recovery window afterwards is and that's often not seen in training plans what i mean by intense and severe is like these people are on the couch, you know, really like fundamentally um, abiding by the three R's, right? Refueling, rehydration, and rest. So they have the ability to not move at all. So they can get the glycogen resynthesis, protein resynthesis um, in their tissues. They're hydrating, they're napping, they're sleeping, they're doing all these things after these severe sessions that most high school college athletes don't have the privilege or uh, bandwidth to do. And most amateurs don't because life goes on. Right. I mean, but for an elite athlete, that is part a parcel of the training process is that stress plus recovery equals growth. Right. When we don't um, pay attention to or respect the, the depth of recovery that we needs to happen after this, that's when we get the stacking of stress. And then we get, you know, rather that super compensation and that adaptation we want, we get to exhaustion and we scratch our heads and go, Hey, why are we stagnating and plateauing? Yeah. 
Exactly. It really does come back to that stress and adaptation and making sure that we've got the right balance there. And again, I think that's why VO2 max stuff is is tricky. It's worth reiterating is it doesn't have the natural barrier to keep you from doing dumb stuff in terms of <laughs> put, like messing up that balance of stress and rest, right? right. And it, and that's that's kind of what it is. That's why it makes it so bang for your buck, but also like dangerous because like it's so easy to mess that up. Right. And ways to mitigate that are important. We talked about this concept of, you know, oxidation of quote unquote lactic or acidosis ingredients. And so after you do, if you have a VO2 max session, a paradigm I started using that has been really beneficial is the second part or the first part of the recovery, the initial part of the recovery are these flush uh, aerobic type reps afterwards and it can be as short as 200 like with middle distance runners or even milers uh, high school level like it'll just be 200 meters at kind of like marathon half marathon type effort so kind of more on the sub t side of that kind of aerobic or anaerobic threshold window that exists or that you know that zone if you want to call it that but on the lower end side of it and then 200 meters jog, walk, jog. It can be that simple doing it for two, you know, five laps. For older athletes, yeah, you can do flush 800s, flush 1200s, up to flush miles. But the important thing is you get that initial you know, aerobic or oxidative flush in to the body to help create that stimulation of getting all those lactic byproducts out. And we know that you know, lactic ingredients can be flushed out much more rapidly than was once thought, which was once the accepted paradigm of lactic acid, DOMS, and that, you know, um, connection that is, has actually no correlation or causation to one another. (laughs) Yes. Very true. Um, you know, I, I like that you brought that up and I think this is, you know, this is why I think the, we'll say post-workout or cool down activity is really important after vo2 max or like anything faster is like you have the ability to influence the recoverability but also the impact of that that kind of acidosis on you it's like that's why you know things like you said are important you can uh, implement longer cool down sessions right you can i remember watching you know david torrance recipes but i remember watching him after a workout where you know what he would do is run a couple uh, 400s at kind of that threshold, sub-threshold kind of pace after a hard session. And you're just like, what are you doing? And it's like, oh, this just clear things out quicker. So we get back on, 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 you know, so that I can bounce back off of this instead of letting it kind of sit in my system and be the last stimulus that I feel. You know, also too, that's where hydration comes into play too. Like a sugar solution, like, you know, something even as simple as Gatorade right after you do that, you know, taking a couple of sips, getting that into the body, that will help, you know, your blood sugar levels, uh, you know, perk up, which will also too allow a little bit and foster a little quicker glycogen replenishment because that's key as well. So, you know, it's understanding there's a lot of uh, big rocks or principles at play here. And oftentimes, the culprit of um, corrosion in VO, classic VO2 max sessions isn't the application of the session. It's the lack of 
recovery or recovery or respect to the recovery time horizons after the session. And that's, you know, again, where say even someone who is at the top of their game, you know, um, really, you know, very progressive, like an, uh, an early adopter, an innovator, someone who's always, uh, you know, trying to get their training a little bit better, like Mike Smith can sometimes make a rookie error. And it's because it's easy to do. Yep. We all mess up, man. <laughs> I mean, it's that's true, it, it. It just depends. Are you going to be, you know, have the humility to mess up and then correct? Yeah. And, and that's, yeah, go ahead. That was just kind of, that's where the magic lies. You know, that's what it's all about is like understanding that, Hey, like sometimes we're going to mess up and we need to correct. And the other thing I would say is also is like, you know, not to harp on the point, but like the easiest thing you can do as a high school coach is just give a ton of VO2 max work and see kids get quote unquote faster kind of pretty quickly. But like you have to have respect for their development as an athlete, their development over time, their enjoyment of the sport, et cetera, et cetera. So hopefully set them up for long-term success if they are going to college or pro if they're lucky enough or like long-term enjoyment of the sport if they, you know, don't. Because like those VO2 max workouts can be utterly, you know, tough. They're just a grind. Yeah, and that's honestly, you don't have to do workouts. You can just have the early races be that VO2 max stimulus, right? Have your milers run two miles. Have, you know, if you're in college, have your milers or, you know, even your 5K or 10K runners run 5Ks, right? Because, you know, the goal is not necessarily in the early part of the season is is performance. The goal is to, you know, uh, prepare for that kind of peak performance at the end of the season. So races are really early season races are really good tools and vehicles for that. The other thing to also warrant too, is knowing that the time horizons for, you know, complete restoration or oxidation, so to speak of those lactic ingredients takes longer than we think is not to do the classic, which happened to me in college. We're going to do a hard, hard, you know, last mile time trial or 2K, 3K time trial the week before, you know, this peak cross country race or the week before, you know, districts or something. Right. And it's like, yeah, that's your race. You left your race on the practice track. (laughs) And that was but that was very common to do was that test effort because it gave people confidence in their ability going into that championship time of season. But at the same time, unfortunately, you know, um, shot also their capacity to perform at that level the week after that session was um, executed. Yeah. You know, and sometimes I should say this comes from, we'll, we'll call it insecurity from the coaches. Like, these types of sessions, whether that mild time trial or that like really hard VO2 max session, four by mile, whatever it is, those are often your quote unquote best indicators of like fitness because they're like specific to the race. Mm-hmm. So people get these ideas of, oh, I ran my 800s at this. I ran my thousands at this. I can, you know, race at this pace. And there's, you know, some legitimacy towards that. But like, that is often where we start to use the workouts as like proving ground mm, mm-hmm. instead of like stimulus for adaptation. Yeah. You know, it goes back to this concept of 
everyone is, uh, it's very seductive and enticing, the VO2 max session, right? Because it is proof of the, the gains you have made in training. And a lot of times we, unfortunately, because of the energetics of distance running and then the recovery time horizons wedded to the depletion of those energetic substrates, we don't get to like do a lot of like tests in training, like say spinners might, throwers might, or jumpers might, because, uh, you know, we just have longer restoration time horizons because we're also dealing with a lot of energetic uh, depletion. So our tests are races <laughs> and it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, you know, as you said, it creates insecurity. It creates, you know, uh, disorientation because you're not really sure where you're at. And that's where having been through the cycle, having understand how, you know, typically most people adapt to, uh, you know, a systematic stimuli helps, but also too, it's understanding we don't need to have these big leaps. You don't need to go from, oh yeah, I was a, you know, 932 mile to now I'm, you know, 910 all of a sudden. It can be, you're just solid. You're always around like 915 plus or minus. And having that stability in your performance capacity can set you up for a lot of success because if you know you can run around 915 for two mile, no matter what, whether it's windy and cold or a little bit hot and humid, that gives you a lot more um, confidence in the ability to perform on the day and actually compete in the moment against other people versus looking at the clock and then making calculations of, is this a good day or bad day based off early pacing indicators? Yeah, it really is kind of that nuance there, you know, of what are you trying to do and what are you kind of accomplish? And I think part of what has changed this is like, even at the high school level is there's like a, and we've talked about this ad nauseum, but there's a shift towards war time, mm-hmm. right? Go run your paced race and get your time. Or even in cross country, like go to whatever that place running lane is and get your fast 5k versus, um, you know, show up to race. And I think this is one of those kind of natural items that pushes that to that level is like, well, what do we want to do? Well, we want to run fast and get our, our PR down. So, you know, that emphasizes overemphasizes like these kind of very tough, um, kind of ride the line grind it if, because that's kind of what a time trial type race is going to be like. Yeah, the Grand Slam phenomena is exactly that. Like we, those are the shots heard around the world. Like, you know, with boy high school runners in the U.S., how many boy high school runners are under sub four now? And it's like a lot of it has to do with the impact and influence of super shoes. But what's going to be interesting is seeing how these Grand Slam, you know, athletes who got a little bit of micro fame because of this Grand Slam of sub of this one sub four mile race in a you know, very well set up environment, actually transition and adjust to different competitive crucibles. Because at the end of the day, our sport is still driven towards at the scholastic level and even the professional level at where you place, where you place on the day, whether it's a major marathon, whether it's, uh, you know, championships and rounds of championships, whether it's an individual race. Yes, time is a story and time does have import. Um, and a lot of people can uh, understand from a storytelling perspective time because they can go 
oh, my marathon times this, their marathon, marathon times that. Wow, that's really fast. It creates that orientation. But at the same token, too, it comes down to competing. It comes down to placing. A good example of that, right, that we're seeing now is like, say, um, Kaylin Tui. Like, she was always a competitor competing. And that's the concept is compete, compete, compete. And it's le- she's leveraged it in her favor, right? Winning cross-country nationals, now becoming a, you know, the NLI professional Adidas athlete as still a college athlete, uh, you know, <laughs> or NIL, sorry. It, it, you know, but the concept is still race to win. And fundamentally, we have to define winning not just solely as what time did you ran, but like, as a lot of smart high school coaches listen to this have done and have talked to me about it is they define it as like, say, you know, um, from say hood to count or hood to coast mentality, right? What's, um, your quote unquote body count or roadkill? Like how many people can you pass in the last mile? How many people can you pass in the last 400? Cause that then signals to the athlete. What's important is about laying it all out there, going for it, trying to, you know, compete against other people on the day versus solely being motivated by what the stopwatch says or that, um, you know, big clock on the side of the track says. It's an important distinction. And I think, again, there's there's nuance here. We're not saying times are never important, but like you got to develop that racing, ability, that racing ability, you mm-hmm. know, and, you, you know, especially as you kind of move up the things and i i think caitlin tilly is a, a great example of someone who's been coached well in high school and then also collegiately on how to right how to handle i that. mean the men's counterpart to this off the top of the head is like luis Guevara, right luis was never a top cross-country runner on any he was never i think ever the number one man right but he was very dependable could race got excited to race and then he on the track is where he really started to like grow into being confident in racing and then all of a sudden this guy gets fourth in the world <laughs> in the 5K, almost wins a global medal. And you're like, who? This guy's never won anything, but he was always competing. And that's the thing is that competitive impulse and competitive mindset is what we esteem in some of the greatest athletes out there. Like, you know, the Michael Jordans of the world, the, you know, the Tiger Woods of the world, maybe not the best people like off the, the, the field, but when they're on in the competitive arena, they approach the problem differently and they think differently than most other people because what they esteem and prioritize is, you know, uh, outpaced or uh, uh, much different and outsized from what the majority of people um, esteem and emphasize. So it's important to study their psychology in the competitive arena and not necessarily also esteem them outside when they make, you know, very detrimental personal um, decisions. Yep. Exactly. I think you're spot on there. Spot on. So, all right. Anything else to add on this kind of VO2 max uh, tirade we went down? Well, as always, I will say look to the literature. And a Mm. good point in the literature is Steve's OG, The Science of Running, (laughs) Chapter 5, The Fallacy of VO2 max. Um, I mean, if you want a really succinct evidence-based discussion on why VO2 max is something to understand and treat with caution, that's a really good place to start. There you go. Go back to the OG, man. Science Mm -hmm. of running. Um, 
I remember writing that chapter and getting some heat from people for right. writing that chapter. But I think the idea isn't, again, to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, hey, never do this stuff. It's just to understand that, you know, here are the here are the benefits of it. Here are the dangers and pitfalls. And uh, too often we kind of get caught being greedy and, and trying to go somewhere and, and exploit it before mm-hmm. we really need to go there and exploit it. Yeah, it's it's the concept of Maslow's hammer, right? If you have a hammer, everything's a nail. And it's it's another tool in the toolbox. And I still use it. I, I mean, when the need is there, when the athlete, like I gave the example of my wife, when she's like, hey, I just feel like I can't change gears. I'm just here. I don't. I, I can't do this. By all means, it's let we now we need to exploit it. But it has to happen contextually with, you know, uh, the background of understanding that how you administer it creates different time horizons for restoration. And so you just, you just have to know. And a lot of times we just all always gravitate towards the work, right? I mean, that was, you know, peak performances book in a nutshell. It's like we overemphasize the import of the hard work without also concurrently um, budgeting for the need for the recovery to foster that growth. And that's the key thing with, you know, uh, an acute transient scale from one session or a couple of sessions within a season, also to a longitudinal scale of the athlete's de- longitudinal horizon of development in general for that high school kid who will become a college, uh, you know, competitor who might also just also want to compete at a club level uh, post collegiately. Exactly. Exactly. Love it. All right, everybody. Well, hopefully you found something useful in this episode. If you did. If you want to get off the doom of social media, well, guess what? Jo- join the scholar program. Get in the scholar clubhouse. Like this oh is goodness. your answer. So it's the spot. If you're looking for new new ideas about training or recovery or application of it, you know, especially now as you're transitioning from cross country to track and field for lost scholastic based coaches and athletes, this is a really good time to hop in and just kind of get used to that environment. Cause it's, it's one of those fun things. It's like always popping. I mean, that is the first thing I look at in the morning now is not the news, not my email. The first like internet engagement or digital engagement I have is the clubhouse. I go, Oh, someone posted some cool stuff here. This is awesome. Love it. There you go. Get on board, check it out. And thanks everybody for listening. We appreciate all you guys and gals. So Till next time, everybody, take care, good coaching.